Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Well, for most of his life, Alfred Gwynn Vanderbilt was known as a billionaire playboy. He inherited a lavish amount of wealth from his railroad tycoon father. When his father passed away about two years after his graduation from college, Vanderbilt inherited the equivalent of $150 billion in today's money. And he then began to live what we might call the high life. He traveled and partied and womanized before settling down to start a family a few years later. Over time, Vanderbilt worked his way up the corporate ladder in his father's company and became a successful businessman and real estate developer and breeder of horses. In the spring of 1915, uh, Alfred Vanderbilt booked a trip aboard the popular ocean liner, the Lusitania, so he could attend a meeting of the International Horse Breeders Association in London. Now, this was nothing out of the ordinary for Vanderbilt because he had crossed the Atlantic at least seven times prior for either business or pleasure. Even though the Atlantic was brimming with German U-boats because World War I had just started, uh, the trip was considered still safe because the Lusitania was a civilian passenger ship, and it was assumed that the Germans would not attack a civilian passenger ship. However, on the morning of May 7, 1915, the Lusitania was torpedoed by a German U-boat and it shortly began to list and sink off the coast of Ireland. Within minutes, the boat was nearly underwater. And in the early 20th century, before there were a lot of regulations on boats and safety requirements, uh, there were usually not enough life jackets or lifeboats for all the passengers on board. And so thus, the first-class passengers were typically given access to the vest and lifeboats before everyone else. What was out of the ordinary and atypical is what happened next. After Vanderbilt was given his life jacket, he gave it away to a lower-class passenger. He then spent the remaining minutes of his life making sure as many women and children got into the lifeboats as possible. The Lusitania sunk in just 18 minutes, taking approximately 1,200 of the nearly 2,000 souls on board with it to the ocean floor. However, many more lives would have been lost had it not been for the unexpected heroism of billionaire Alfred Vanderbilt. In the weeks following the Lusitania's sinking, eyewitness accounts and Vanderbilt's heroic gesture uh, reached the media. A reporter from the New York Times wrote in an article about the tragedy that Vanderbilt had demonstrated, quote, gallantry, which no words of mine can describe. Every now and then throughout history, we are given a positive example of what we should do from an unlikely or unexpected source. This is certainly the case in the Scriptures and in the Scripture text we're going to be looking at this morning. I'd like to introduce you to a few unusual men who provide an unexpected example that we all should follow. Uh, But first, let's open up our copies of God's Word together to Matthew chapter 2. And I also want to encourage you to pull out the sermon outline you received when you came in and so you can record what the Lord teaches you uh, during our time together in God's Word. And if you forgot your Bible, just raise your hands and one of our ushers can bring one to you. We have plenty we can loan out. Our big idea for today, the sermon in a sentence, I think would be this. 
we're going to be looking at the wise men on the back end of the Christmas story. And I think the wise men provide a perfect response to the Christmas story. The wise men provide a perfect response to the Christmas story. Throughout the scriptures, the Lord has shown time and time and again how he loves to use the least qualified people to do some of his greatest work. For example, he used Abraham to show he could start a nation with a man way past his child-rearing years. Then God used a stutterer named Moses, raised in Pharaoh's household, to lead his people out of Egypt. And when the Israelite spies in Jericho needed to be hidden before they were discovered, the Lord used a prostitute named Rahab. And and when the Lord needed a king to succeed Saul, he chose David, who was the youngest of Jesse's eight sons, in a selection that surprised the prophet himself, Samuel, who did the anointing. And when the Lord needed someone to plant churches and write half of the New Testament, he chose the greatest Christian killer on earth at the time, Paul. Well, this pattern repeats itself in one of the final portions of the Christmas story found in Matthew chapter 2. Follow along with me, if you would, as I read the first couple of verses. We're told, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. There are four truths that the wise men teach us in this passage this morning. The first on your outline is that Jesus is worthy of our inconvenient worship. Jesus is worthy of our inconvenient worship. It says in verse 1, Now after Jesus was born, contrary to popular belief and what many children's books would show us, this part of the Christmas story takes place between one to two years after Jesus was born. One way scholars have figured this out is by looking at the Greek word used to refer to Jesus in the passage. Matthew uses the word paideon in verses 9 and 11, which refers to a young child or toddler, instead of the Greek word for infant that was used in Luke chapter 2. Another clue that helps us know these wise men arrived, when they arrived, excuse me, is found in verse 11 in Matthew chapter 2 here. It says that they entered a house, not a stable. So we know this part of the Christmas story took place after Joseph and Mary had returned back to their home in Nazareth. Also, notice it says in verse 1, in the days of Herod the king. Matthew introduces us here to a really bad dude. Although he was called a king, he was really more like a governor appointed by the Roman Empire, the superpower in the world at that time. Uh, Herod was, was appointed to oversee the state of Israel. Herod was an extremely gifted politician and administrator and builder. But unfortunately, he was also a cruel, paranoid tyrant that killed anyone who came close to interfering with his rule. In in fact, Herod even had one of his nine wives and two of his brothers killed because he suspected them of treason. Now, we're told also in verse 1 that wise men came from the east. You see that there in your Bible. Some translations refer to these men as magi, uh, like the New American Standard or the NIV translation. The word magi actually comes from the Greek word magic, for magic, or magician. 
so although there's been much debate about who these guys really are, most evangelical commentators agree that these fellows were sort of a hybrid of um, scholars, scientists, priests, astrologers, and fortune tellers all wrapped up into one. They were wealthy, intelligent, and spiritual. We, we know that much about them. The wise men most likely studied the prophetic text of multiple religions and traveled from the Far East. Some believe they traveled from Babylon, which is most likely where they came from, because Babylon was the center for stargazing at the time. It was the place where astrologers gathered for conferences and where they went to learn more about how to study the stars. Although other scholars have speculated that these men could have come from Arabia, Persia, or the Orient. Those are possibilities too. We're told that when they arrived in verse 2 and they went before Herod, they tell Herod, we saw a star rise in the east. So on the night that Jesus was born, God positioned a star several hundred miles to the east that caught the attention of these astrologers. Now we don't know for sure what it looked like, what made it different, but apparently it was so unique that these stargazers who studied the stars went, now that's something we haven't seen before. That wasn't there last night. And so they felt compelled to spend one to two years following it to see where it was going. So it was a moving star. And the other stars, they don't move. You see that one and that one and these thousand stars over here. They seem to stay in place, but that star's different and it's moving. We should follow it and see where it's going. It says in verse 2 that they came to worship Him. This is a profound statement. It, it's important that we not miss this. And so I'm going to make it as clear as I can. The wise men are pagan, unbelieving astrologers who traveled for months to do one thing to worship the newborn king. Unexpected, out of the ordinary, unusual. It's also an indictment on some Christians who make excuses for their poor worship service attendance. One of my favorite authors, A.W. Tozer, captured the priority of worship and what it should be for those who profess Christ as their Savior when he wrote this, all examples that we have in the Bible illustrate that glad and devoted and reverent worship is the normal employment of Christians. Every glimpse that is given us of heaven and of God's created beings is always a glimpse of worship and rejoicing and praise because God is who He is. And I can safely say on the authority of all that is revealed in the Word of God that any man or woman on this earth who is bored and turned off by worship is not ready for heaven. Penetrating words and insight from A.W. Tozer. Corporate worship not only gives us a preview of heaven, He's, Tozer is also pointing out something very astute that most of us miss, and that is that worship prepares us for heaven, too. And the wise men's example here is a reminder that Jesus is worth rearranging our schedules and going to bed earlier on Saturday night and getting up earlier on Sunday morning so we can give the King of Kings, our best worship, not our leftovers. Why? Because that baby born in a manger gave his best for you. So you could be forgiven. 
so you could have peace with God and forgiveness for your sins and eternal life. He is worthy of inconvenient worship. Worthy of our worship when it's hard to get out of bed, when we are busy, when there are other things we would rather do than go worship Him. He's still worthy. Next, let's look at the text in verses 3-6. through six. This incredible story continues to, un- to unravel here, or to unwrap. It says, For we saw the star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. Verse 3, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And so they told him. Oh yeah, they got out their copies of the Old Testament and they thumbed through. Oh, it says right here, Herod, in Bethlehem of Judea. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's a prophecy about this. And you, verse 6, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Yeah, yeah, it's right there, Herod. Yep, there's supposed to be a Messiah that comes. Now, here's the number, here's the second truth on your outline. Jesus is worthy of our unconditional obedience. The, the wise men show us that Jesus is worthy of our unconditional obedience. It says in verse 3, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Now, as I mentioned earlier, Herod was a hypersensitive tyrant who uh, attacked any threats to his power. But he also may have been upset here, because it says he's troubled. He may have also been upset because the local religious leaders missed the arrival of the Messiah. And I think it's possible Herod is, 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 is saying... Even though it's not recorded, I, this, is, this is conjecture on my part, but I think it's likely Herod is going, why are these astrologers from Babylon telling me there was a king born on my watch, in my land, and yet you, Israelites, you priests and scribes, didn't tell me first? The word troubled in the original text means to agitate, or to disturb or stir someone up on the inside. It, it, it paints a word picture of, of taking a bucket of water and moving it from side to side so the water splashes up against the sides of the bucket. It, it, the word for trouble means to, to make someone restless on the inside. Jerusalem was probably troubled. Notice it says that as well. He was troubled. And all Jerusalem was troubled. Why? Well, I think they were troubled because they knew if Herod wasn't happy, then nobody in town was going to be happy. You know that old saying, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy? Well, I think that same, same principle was taking place or worked in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod's upset, people die. When he's nervous or paranoid, heads roll, literally. So, additionally, there was tension that existed between Herod and the Jewish people because they didn't view Herod as their rightful king. They grew up going to Sunday school in the Jewish temples hearing the prophecies about a Messiah who would descend from the bloodline of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to be their king. Herod, though, was a descendant of Esau. Thus, the Jewish people not only resented Herod's leadership style, his taxation and his cruelty, but they also did not respect Herod's bloodline. That was a big deal back then. So there was a lot of pre-existing tension before the wise men showed up and, and announced to Herod, surprisingly, catching him off guard, that, hey, the the Jewish Messiah, who's going to be the king of the people of Israel, yeah, he was born here like two years ago. 
And his star showed up over in our land, and we followed that star for about two years, and we just want to know if you could tell us exactly where he is. And so, you see in verse 5 then, what happens is, the priest and the scribes answer Herod's question by saying, oh yeah, and he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. Now the Jewish religious leaders are an example of what not to do set against the wise men who show us what to do. Now let me explain. The Jewish religious leaders, the chief priests and the scribes, they were aware of the prophecies about a Messiah being born in Bethlehem, but unaware he had already been born one to two years prior, just five miles away. It's a sobering warning. Dear loved ones, please don't miss this. It's a sobering warning that it is possible to be informed by the Scriptures without being transformed by them. You can know God's Word in your head, but never act on it. It's also a serious reminder of the massive canyon that exists in every human being between the head and the heart. Now, on the other hand, the wise men are an example of what to do. They knew the prophecies. They saw the star rise because they were watching for it, unlike the chief priests and the scribes. And then the, the wise men applied their knowledge of the prophecies by coming to worship the Christ child. And because they had studied God's Word, they knew how important the Messiah was. And because they knew how important He was, the inconvenience of traveling several hundred miles for one to two years was worth it to them. So, if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you should want to learn and apply His Word because you love Him. Savoring His Word and then doing what it says is one of, if not the most important thing you can do to show Jesus you love Him back. There is no possible conception or idea or hint of anybody who knows Jesus Christ in the Scriptures but does not know His Word and love His Word and love Him by applying His Word. Such a person does not exist in the Scriptures. In fact, Jesus made this clear in John chapter 14 when He said, if you love Me, then obey My commands. Don't just tell Me you love Me. Show Me. And He shouldn't have to do this, but He does. He even incentivizes our obedience by saying in Luke 11 verse 28, blessed are those who hear the Word of God and keep it. No, no, not just hear it, but they keep it. They do it. This is one of the many reasons why I have for, for years in my preaching ministry included applications. Because I have this burning passion. I see this disconnect in the American church between knowledge of the Bible and application of the Bible. I've met plenty of people who know the Word really well and can quote Scripture left and right, but then they don't do what it says. Or they love the Scriptures and they like it until 
until God's word tells them they can't do or have what they want. Like an adulterous relationship. Or getting married, remarried before a divorce is finalized. Yeah, but God's word says you can't do that. I don't care. I want it. Yeah, but the word says that's sinful. No, it's not because I really mean well in my heart. No, the word says it's wrong. No, 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 no. I hate you. I'm leaving this church. That's a pattern. It's happened to me over and over again. So the wise men provide a perfect response to the Christmas story in that they heard the word, they knew the word, and they applied the word, and yet they don't even believe in the gods the Jews did, in the God that the Jews did. They, they're, they're not born again. Very ironic. Next, let's look at verses 7 through 10. So then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and he ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Um, he wasn't planning on doing that. Just wanted to let you know. Verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that had, they had seen, when it rose, it went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Next, here's the third truth that the wise men teach us, and that is that the Lord is worthy of our unwavering fellowship. And yes, fellowship is a word. I checked it in the dictionary. It is the exact opposite or antonym of leadership. So I chose that word on purpose because we are not saved to lead Jesus to where we want to go. We are saved to submit to His leadership and the very term disciple or discipleship that we see in the Scriptures, it means to be a disciple means to be a learner. We're, we're called servants of Christ, slaves to Christ. All the names that refer to born-again believers in the Scriptures describe Believers as submitting, following the leadership of Christ. Now, by taking a closer look at this story, we can see there's a lot more going on than just some astrologers giving gifts and worshiping Jesus. We also see these wise men going on an almost two-year journey, following God step by step, leading to their destination. Now, there's something here we need to not miss. For those who know Christ personally, we know that following the Lord's direction is both an expectation and a blessing. Believers are called to do God's will. It's an expectation because Jesus calls us to adjust our lives to His plan so He can use us for His glory. He, he didn't save us so that we can get Him to do all we want and to fulfill our dreams and goals and passions. It's also a blessing to follow the Lord's direction because His plans are always better than ours. And we know from the Scriptures that the Lord uses His Word and circumstances and godly counsel and prayer to lead us towards His sovereign will. In verses 7 through 10, which I just read, there are three additional principles for decision-making in the will of God that I think will be helpful to all of us. So here's A, B, and C on your outline. Letter A, the Lord can use unbelievers to funnel us. The Lord can use unbelievers to funnel us. Funnel is a term that Maya and I have used to describe seasons in our own journey when the Lord either pushed us in a, a direction we needed to go or He wanted us to go, or He rerouted us by closing all the other doors, so only one door was left. 
It says in verse 8, Herod sent them to Bethlehem. Notice how the Lord used Herod to tell the wise men that Jesus was in Bethlehem. The wise men didn't know exactly where he was. The wise men only knew the city, the metropolis of Jerusalem. But Herod, because he had summoned the priests and the scribes, was able to tell them which suburb. Bethlehem. It's five miles away. This means the Lord isn't limited to just using Christians to accomplish His plans. He's bigger than that. And this is also a way the Lord just shames and humbles unbelievers who won't repent and trust in Christ as their Savior. (laughs) The Lord, He'll use them anyway to still accomplish His plans, and even though they don't even realize they're being used. He can use anybody, anything, even Balaam's donkey, to get a message across. Now, now I have to say this. I've got to qualify this here. I've got to fence what I'm saying because I, I fear being misunderstood. So please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying Christ followers should seek counsel on big decisions from unbelieving or ungodly people. What I am saying is that the Lord can use the decisions of, say, an unsaved CEO downsizing your company or an unbelieving doctor giving you test results or even a self-centered politician to accomplish his will in your life. So be on the lookout for this possibility. That's, That's what I'm saying. Here's the next principle about how God guides. Letter B... The Lord gives information on a need-to-know basis. He gives information on a need-to-know basis. He does this with the wise men. It says in verse 9, The star that they had seen, it went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. One reason I think the Lord leads in this way is so that He can grow our faith. Another reason I think he does this is because if he showed us everywhere he was going to lead us or every step in the process to our destination, it would overwhelm the circuits of our finite minds, causing our CPUs to crash. (laughs) Just, Just think of that emoji on your messaging app with the brain exploding, the head exploding. One great example of this from my own life is uh, when Maya and I stepped out in faith uh, to go to Dallas Theological Seminary many, many years ago and presidential administrations ago. We were living in Cedar Rapids, Iowa at the time as newlyweds and college graduates. We were serving in our church and we both had decent jobs in the marketplace. And through a series of circumstances and Holy Spirit prompting and Godly counsel that we sought. The Lord made it clear that He wanted us to move to Dallas so I could begin to get my theological training and a master's degree. By faith, we quit our jobs, sold half of our belongings, and prepared to move south. Two Midwestern kids moving down to Texas in the Bible Belt. There's just one little thing, though, we hadn't figured out yet. And that was how to pay for my tuition. It's just a small thing. And we also had committed to the Lord that we weren't going to go into debt for any more schooling. I had some undergraduate student loans that I was still paying off. And so we just felt really compelled, convicted that we should not take on any more debt for schooling. Well, just a couple of weeks before we were to depart Cedar Rapids, Iowa, I got a phone call, a surprising phone call, notifying me that um, my grandfather, unbelieving grandfather, he had passed away a few months earlier. And I, I got a phone call letting me know that he had left a small inheritance for me that was enough to cover the first two years of my tuition. But it was a four year program. And so, like you all would, because I don't want to be 
convicted by myself up here. Um, I thanked the Lord, but then said, but what about the other two years, Lord? I mean, I mean thanks, but uh, it's a four-year program. The Lord eventually did provide the final two years of my schooling through another God story I don't have time to get into, and he provided so in his perfect timing through someone we hadn't even met yet when we left. But we had to step out in faith when he only provided tuition for the first two years and then trust him to provide the last two years of tuition. And by God's grace, praise the Lord, I graduated which was a miracle, and we graduated debt-free. We, we, we didn't have to pay for any seminary tuition. So the Lord gives information on a need-to-know basis, and that's one example from my own life where he's done that. Let us see the next principle about how God guides and leads that we can see here in the text is that the Lord sometimes leads us from the known to the unknown. He sometimes leads us from the known to the unknown. He doesn't always do this, but we do see it often in the scriptures. Before he uses someone mightily, he will stretch their faith by removing them from their comfort zone, from their homeland. This can be seen in the lives of Abraham, Moses, Gideon, David, Jonah, Paul, Peter, on and on I could go. If you want to be used by God, be prepared to give up your comfort. You can't stay comfortable and stay in the known and what you're familiar with and be used by God. It, it just rarely happens that way. Now, when we do step out in faith to follow the Lord, we always end up being blessed. And we see that here from the wise men. Again, they're setting an example that the believers at the time should have been doing. The, the wise men, they didn't go, oh man, what a bummer of a trip. I mean, gosh, we spent two years traveling eight to 900 miles from Babylon. And here's this baby here. No, 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 no. The opposite happened. Look how they responded to following God's leading step by step. Verse 10, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. There were no regrets. They had found what they had been searching for. Months of trusting, persevering, and sacrifice had finally paid off. They had found what they believed to be true, and they were in awe. Well, let's look back at uh, the text again here in verses 11 and 12. So, they go into the house. Remember that key word there? That's one of the clues that tells us this is one to two years after Jesus had been born. So they're, the, the first family here is back at home. They saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Here's the fourth and final uh, principle, truth, that we learn from the wise men is that Jesus is worthy of our best giving. He's worthy of our best giving. These treasures that they brought, uh, gold was much more rare back in the first century than it is today, and thus worth much more than it is today. Frankincense was an ingredient used in making perfume. Again, worth a lot back then because this is, these are the days before deodorant and chemical factories and uh, makeup lines by, you know, endorsed by beauty models and stuff. Myrrh was an element in anointing oil, and it was also a perfume, and it was used to deodorize clothes. Again, keep in mind, this is before Maytag washing machines. And, uh, now, another common misperception I need to address about this part of the Christmas story is that there were only three wise men. Most of the cards, the graphics, the pictures you see at Christmas time show three wise men on camels bringing their gifts to the manger scene. 
This assumption is passed down through tradition because there were three gifts. However, please notice the Scripture text does not tell us anywhere how many wise men there were. We don't know. There also has been much speculation over the years about the symbolism of these gifts. Although the text does not explicitly state any symbolic purpose in these gifts, scholars do know from historical documents that only the wealthy could afford these gifts, and most of the time these kinds of gifts were given to royalty. That's all we know. So it could have been six wise men, could have been ten, could have been two. It's plural, we know that much. But as far as symbolism of what the gifts mean and one being the blood of Christ or something else, it, it's not there. That would be, how shall I say it, bold conjecture, risky hypothesizing. So, what we do know, though, and I think is safe to assume, is that these expensive gifts were God's provision for the funds Joseph, Mary, and baby Jesus would need to escape to Egypt. They had to escape to Egypt, as you will soon see in verses 13 to 18, to avoid Herod's wrath. I mean, isn't that cool? When you, when you give to the Lord, He will then use your gift to meet the need of somebody who doesn't even know they need it yet. Please tell me you see that. That's, that's just... Mary, Joseph, and... Well, Jesus probably knew in his little toddler mind, but, but Mary and Joseph didn't know they were going to need funds to get out of the country very soon. They were poor, and they lived in one of the poorest suburbs of Jerusalem, Nazareth. So the wise men gave generously because they knew to whom they were giving. Please don't miss that. On the other hand, I've observed that when believers don't fully grasp who they're giving to, they usually don't give generously. So, stingy giving or meager giving is a theological problem. Here's what I mean. Take, for example, the story once told by Andrew Fuller. Fuller was an influential 18th century Baptist minister and theologian. And he had a great heart for world missions. He once asked his friend to make a donation to his church's mission fund. And so his friend responded... Well, seeing it is you, Andrew, I will give five pounds. Fuller promptly responded, Well, seeing it is me to whom you propose to give five pounds, I will not accept your gift. So his friend thought for a moment and then replied, You are right. And now seeing it is the Lord Jesus Christ I am giving to, I will give ten pounds. I'm so grateful as your pastor that most of you have learned this. Generosity is one of the greatest strengths of our church. And those of you who are still not giving what you should be giving to the Lord, I want to encourage you to study the scriptures and to go before the Lord in prayer and to ask Him how you can bring your finances under His Lordship and to see that when you give back to His church, you're giving to Him. He deserves it, and you won't regret it. Because there's nobody in heaven right now going, you know, I, I wish I wouldn't have given as much to the Lord's work. I should have kept more for myself. Man, think about the new cars I could have had, and could have had a bigger house, and golly, I, sorry, Lord, I gave too much to you. There's nobody doing that. In fact, I can promise you there are people in heaven today that wish they had given more when they had the chance. 
Well, let's look at the remainder of the story as these events with Herod wrap up in verses 13 to 18. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Verse 16, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeps for her children. She Refuse to be comforted because they are no more. Well, how do we apply what we've heard today and seen in the wise men? And again, I want to clarify, there's no evidence in the text that they became believers or born again. I, I, I want to make sure I'm not putting anything into the text that's not there. But the Lord used them to do what believers should do, to model what believers should do. So I think there's several applications we could glean, but here's two that come to mind. The Lord may give you some additional ones. Number one, remember who you worship. Remember who, capital H, who you worship. One litmus test of your spiritual maturity is whether you will give the incarnate Christ the worship He deserves even when it's inconvenient for you. And whether you will give to Him financial gifts He deserves when it might hurt to give. I mean, vacations are good. Having a nice house is okay. Visiting family out of town is good. We all get sick from time to time. However, please remember, Jesus wants your worship to dictate your schedule instead of your schedule dictating your worship. And when we do so, when we get things in the right place there, we show Jesus how much we appreciate the inconvenience He went through to die on the cross for us. Next, number two, second application. Show Jesus you love Him by doing His Word. I mean, this assumes that you make time during your week to spend in His Word, doing personal devotions. The Lord has hardwired all human beings to instinctively make time for what we love. Therefore, if you love Jesus, you'll be willing to sacrifice other things so you can spend time with Him in His Word and in prayer throughout the week. And when you do spend time with Him, instead of rushing your devotional time, do your best to marinate in the Word. Schedule enough time where you can read a passage and pray over it and read it again and ask the Lord, what do you want to change in me? Is it the way I think? Is it the way I behave? Is there something, Lord, you're telling me to do or something you're telling me to stop doing in this passage that I'm looking at today before I go to work? Those are the seeds of application. You see, because the goal of every Christ follower should be that when you open up God's Word each morning during the week to start your day with Him, or when you sit under His preaching on Sunday, your goal should be to leave the text with new marching orders. What am I supposed to do differently now that I've read this? 
Because as you heard me say earlier, God's word was written not to inform us, but to transform us. This is why, and I, again, I'm going to quote A.W. Tozer, one of my favorite authors. He once wrote, whatever keeps me from my Bible is my enemy, however harmless it may appear to be. So if it's your smartphone and social media that keeps you from your Bible, it's your enemy. If it's the morning news talk shows, it's your enemy. If it's ESPN, it's your enemy. If it's your kids, your enemy, so get up earlier before they do. Well, it's hard because, you know, well, then go to bed earlier the night before. Again, nobody can claim to love Jesus and know Jesus, but not love his word. Incongruent in the scriptures. So if you don't love his word and love spending time with him, it raises a very serious question with eternal consequences. Do you really know him? Because everybody that knew him in God's word loves his word, loves to spend time with him, and is willing to do anything for him. And I'm telling you that boldly and just plainly because it's about your soul. I don't want you to be deceived. So if you need to go home today and get before the Lord and get your heart right with Him and recommit this year to give Him time during the week, and you do that, please do it for the sake of your soul. And if you need to invite some accountability into your life and ask some, hey, could you please call me, check up, ask me how my devotions were this week? If you need to do that, do it. If that you need that motivation of knowing at the end of the week, another brother or sister is going to ask you how your devotions were, then you do it, man. Just like you would ask for accountability. Hey, I'm going to be starting to work out at the gym would you join me in working out? Or would you ask me how my working out's going? Because I can't do it by myself. I know I'll get lazy. I need some accountability and motivation. Then you would do it because losing weight is important to you. Those who know the Lord in the scriptures savored his word and treasured it. And of course, if you need help learning how to spend time with the Lord at the start of your day, please don't hesitate to contact me. I can teach you how. I have resources I can recommend that would help you. Resources, the lack thereof is not an excuse. Well, so show Jesus you love him by learning and doing his word. The wise men, they provide a perfect response to the Christmas story. What will your response to the Christmas story be in this new year? Would you join me as we close in prayer? We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.